Well, we're living in an even more exciting time, brethren, because we're right near the end of an age, and I think most of you realize that. And as each month goes by, I, I and I, many of you understand it too, some of you have commented, because you younger people can't fully get it. I don't blame you. You just haven't seen these things happen before. You haven't been around. But we're in a different time. We are seeing our nation go down, seeing our major institutions changed and taken over by the government and socialized and, and uh, power taken away from the people more rapidly in the last few months than we have had and seen in the entire history of the United States. We are entering a different time, and we need to realize that. God said He would humble us. He said He would break the pride of our power. And that is happening right before our eyes again more rapidly than many of us realize. And it's not just President Obama's fault. He's surrounded by these liberals. Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and all these other people. They're just loaded with all this stuff. They've been wanting to, to uh, get this agenda and put it on the American people for decades. And now they're doing it very swiftly. And it's almost getting to a, a kind of Marxism and communism even beyond our normal liberal democracy. So watch and pray. You're going to see these things beginning to speed up and lots of other things are going to happen. For Satan the devil is the god of this world and he has deceived our people terribly and he has deceived the whole world. We call ourselves a Christian nation, but we are no more Christian than Bugs Bunny, you know, or Little Orphan Annie or whatever you want to say. We're just not. And we need to realize that and have not been for some time. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 12, brethren. Revelation chapter 12. And here is a very basic scripture that hopefully many of you know. It says in verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Now, lots of people don't really believe that. They think, well, the Bible is just kind of poetic and these are just general statements. But again, in the 60 years I've been in God's work, I've proved to myself, and I hope you will eventually prove to yourself, this book is the mind of God in print. And in this book, God says what He means and means what He says. He says Satan is the, the, the God of this world, as we'll see, and he deceives the whole world. Not just part of it. The world as a whole has deceived the vast majority of human beings. They just don't get it. So we need to understand that and how he is in charge. Going back, you, you read how in verse 1 talks about the woman, ancient Israel, bringing forth the Messiah here. And uh, then the devil, verse uh, 4, the dragon stood before the woman to devour her child as soon as it was born. The devil ready to destroy Christ because he caused all the little baby boys, remember, under two years old to be murdered there right at that time, trying to kill the Messiah. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and His throne. So it's jumping ahead sometimes hundreds of years from the time these things began to happen. And then it comes to the time the child was born and then suddenly it comes to the time the child was called up to God's throne after 33 and a half years ministry. Then the woman, now becomes the true church, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God. It doesn't say she's raptured off to heaven. Heaven's never called a wilderness. <laughs> she's taken into the wilderness on this earth. 
where she has a place that they should feed her there, as you know, three and a half years. It says three and a half years, three and a half years, four or five different times. Sometimes it calls it here 1,260 days, other times three and a half times, time, times, and half a time, and other times 42 months, but it all adds up to three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. And war broke out in heaven. All right, the woman flees. Hundreds of years go by. And now, brethren, it's talking about the time of the end where a war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. Here is a spirit war that is going to take place sometime in the next several years. It may start taking place in several months. I imagine it's going to be two to four or six years from now, though, but we don't know. One false prophet has said it's already taken place. Well, it has not taken place at all. Otherwise, we'd see terrible things happening, far more than just these political things. But at any rate, the woman uh, is, is going to flee, and then war breaks out here near the end, and uh, they did not prevail, uh, the devil and his demons, nor was a place found for them. So again, the great dragon was cast out, Satan the devil. Then I heard a loud voice, verse 10, now salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come, has come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. So Satan the devil is constantly accusing God's work and God's church and God's people to, to God Himself. He does that to God Himself. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony because they were willing to trust in Christ. And they did not love their lives to death. Some of them were apparently tortured and would rather, will be tortured, as we know, and will actually would rather die than live on in that. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. See, heaven has got rid of the devil, but the devil has come down here, down to the earth. You having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Even now, brethren, he has a short time. But once that battle takes place, he's going to know even more. It's going to be very quick. And now he says in verse 13, When the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So he's going to persecute the church at that time far more than the church has ever been persecuted. And it's going to be horrible. That's one reason we know the heavenly battle has not taken place. How many of us, how many of you have been beaten up and thrown in jail for the truth? You see, I've never been beaten up and thrown in jail for the truth, nor has Mr. Ames, nor most of us. I've had rocks thrown at me, and I've been called all kinds of interesting names on the old baptizing tours and had guns pointed at me, but they never pulled the trigger. But that's going to bring horrible persecution. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Remember, God brought Israel out on eagle's wings. In other words, He gave them the strength and protected them overall, guided them. But how did they come out? They walked. <laughs> they walked. That doesn't mean we're going to walk across the sea, of course, to, to Petra, <laughs> but we're going to have to do a lot of things on our own, but with His guidance. So uh, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly to the wilderness to her place. Again, a wilderness area, no doubt, on this earth. Mr. Rod McNair gave a very fine sermon about six months or a year ago on the place of safety. 
And as he said, it might be Petra. That's the most likely place, that place over in Jordan. But we don't know that. We can't bank on that. God does not specifically say. And I would say again to you who are wondering what Mr. Armstrong said. He had a remarkable way of putting things. Mr. Herbert Armstrong did. He said, the Bible does not specifically say. But if the Bible hints or indicates where it might be, then it would be Petra. The Bible hints or indicates it might be, but it's not something definite. It might be that place. I know one very uh, deceived, uh, mixed-up minister was making fun of Mr. Armstrong's comments and said, Oh, well, huh, I was over there and I saw gunship helicopters fly right over and God could protect us there. Oh, really? Well, God could protect us anywhere. <laughs> he could protect us if we all got inside the, 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 you know, the Empire State Building. doesn't make any difference if God wants to protect you. And uh, it doesn't mean we'd be protected by the natural rock walls and hills around. Of course, that wouldn't help very much with today's armaments. But if God wants to test us and put us there, that's where He'll put us. But it will be a place called the wilderness on this earth. If we walk with God, if we're really converted and surrendering to God as we should be. And she's nourished, here again, three and a half years, for a time and times and half a time. And even the worldly scholars recognize he's talking here about a time as normally a year and then two times. If it went beyond two times, it might be two million times, but obviously it's just two times and, and half a time. So you, you come up to three and a half years. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. So he tries to destroy the woman. God protects the true church at the time of the end. But brethren, at the time of the end, you find a heavenly war breaking out and you find suddenly all kinds of demon activity. Right now, the state of California has been ordered by the courts to let loose 40,000 prisoners out of their prisons out there. And they also, in a companion article in the paper the other day, said they're also going to have to release probably thousands or tens of thousands of people from the mental hospitals out there as well as the prisons. Now, many of the people in jail and certainly many in mental hospitals are demon-influenced or demon-possessed. And as our society comes apart, we're going to see far more demon activity than we have ever had before. We really are, and we need to understand that. And there is finally then, at some point, going to be a spirit war. At that point, the men in Europe, the men and women who are leading the nations, like today Angela Merkel in Germany, and Prime Minister Brown in Britain, well, they would, the British leader wouldn't necessarily be bad, but the ones in Italy and Hungary and, and uh, these other Gentile countries over there, they're not all going to be nice guys the way they are today. I think you'll begin to see they'll have different, a different look on their face. They'll suddenly have a harshness and a meanness and this kind of an eerie feeling about them because then Satan will begin to move into that system called Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, and into the beast power, the woman sits on the beast, and they will have a different attitude. And we'll sense that very much. It'll be scary. But there will be demons in charge more than ever before. So we want to understand that we are living in a world surrounded by spirits. It's interesting how God guided Mr. Lyons to talk about Satan and overcoming in a certain way in his sermonette. 
I had no idea remotely what he was going to say, and I don't think you did what I was going to say, did you? Because I think the only one I told was uh, Monica. I might not have even told her. I told my wife I know, and uh, so I don't think you had any idea either. But sometimes it works out that way where God brings those things that complement each other, which we're doing here today. Okay, we're going into a time of spirit activity, spirit war. Uh, let's turn back to John chapter 12, if you would now, brethren. The Gospel of John uh, chapter 12, and here you find in verse 31, John chapter 12, Jesus Christ is talking near the end of his life, and he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Here's Jesus Christ. He's not talking about his father. He's not talking about himself. Who is he talking about? Obviously, Satan the devil. Christ said the ruler of this world will be cast out. And then you turn to John chapter 14. John 14 and verse 30. Read this. I will no longer talk much with you, he tells the disciples, for the ruler of this world is coming... And he was coming in the person of Judas Iscariot because Satan actually entered a Judas right there at the end and possessed him. And he, the ruler of this world, or the prince of this world, as the King James has it, has nothing in me. You know, Satan had no part in Jesus Christ. Then you turn to chapter 16, John 16 and verse 11. He says... Uh, God's going to judge the world of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the ruler of this world was exposed in one sense when Christ was resurrected from the dead. Satan tried to bring that about by possessing Judas Iscariot to betray Christ, but then Christ was got right out of his hands and was resurrected from the dead. And then all the other processes began that would end up in the Satan the devil going down and out. So Satan is the ruler of this world. And we need to realize this is not God's world. As I've told you many times when I grew up in the Methodist church, while we used to sing this little cute song and our little old Sunday school teacher would tell us, this is my father's world, blah, blah, blah. No, it is not my father's world. This society is Satan's society. The world or the earth is God's, but he has allowed Satan to be the invisible ruler of this world for 6,000 years. And Satan's time is about up. And we can be very grateful for that. Now let's learn more about this being that we're going to be wrestling against the rest of our lives here. Most of you know we've said again and again we have three things to overcome. We have to overcome ourselves, our own human nature, we have to overcome the world and all the pulls and temptations and distractions of this world. And we have to overcome Satan the devil and his demons. So we do need to understand him a little bit. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. This is the first time he's introduced Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of your Bible. Now, I'm kind of skip and jump. I hope I don't stumble too much, but I don't want to keep you too long on each passage. Most of you know some of these passages, but the serpent here is clearly Satan the devil. And every scholar understands that, even Protestants and Catholics and so on. 
Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. And he said to the woman, and I don't want to put down you ladies, but women are more easily deceived. And God does show that over and over again and warns men about that and warned Eve about that. He hit the woman. I know my son Michael has been a very successful salesman and now a executive vice president of a big company, but his sales managers even told him over and over he used to sell encyclopedias and he sold sighting one houses and he sold all kinds of things, insurance finally. They'd say, always try to go when the woman is present, especially if he was selling encyclopedias or something like that, because the women are not just deceived. Women will always be more kind and responsive. God made them that way so they would be loving and kind to us men and our little, when we're little babies and take care of us. We can be thankful but they can be more easily deceived. When I used to sell the Saturday Evening Post and Ladies Home Journal and Liberty Magazine, I'd go to these apartment houses. Now they block you, they won't let you in. Back then they did, and I would always hope the woman would answer because the man would open the door and say, well, we don't need any bang. The woman would look down at this little boy, and she would feel, you know, kindly and responsive, and often she would buy from me. I thought there's hope if the woman opens the door. <laughs> so I didn't mean that statement in an evil way, but it is that way, and Satan takes advantage of that. And as you know, often men in the world today take advantage of women in a horrible way that is not right. But the, the, he said to the woman, he approached her, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree? Is God keeping back something from you? That was the implication. And the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said you will not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So the woman knew what God had said, but this very clever, oily, probably had a very unctuous voice and personality, he said, look, young lady, you know, we're, we're friends here, and you, you see, I'm just a normal guy. I just come in the form of a snake. <laughs> you know, I'm a normal guy, and here I am. And he says, you shall not die. So that was Satan's first lie, and the way he said it must have been very clever. We just get the top of the story. Then the, he says, for God knows, notice his reasoning. You see, God is not fair. A lot of your own children and my children as they grew up would begin to think that at times. God is not fair. He doesn't let us have liquor right away and He doesn't let us smoke and we like to try smoking and He doesn't let us have sex and all that until we're married. God is not fair. He knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. See, He's holding this back from you, this great understanding, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw the tree was good for food and so on. And she took it, gave it to her husband. So he went along with her. Often men just want to be agreeable with their wives. They need to fear God and not put their wives down. But if God has said something, do it. And in the end, the woman will respect you more if you will lead her in the right way as the leader, not the dictator. But he went right along and he ate. And the, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Well, it was not wrong for them to be naked there as man and wife. No one else was around. But they get this sort of a feeling like you've sinned or done something bad. And so they began to hide themselves. Right away, Satan took advantage of humanity. He conquered our first parents. And he will conquer us, each, each of us, if we allow him. Going further back in history, turn with me now, if you would, to Isaiah Isaiah chapter 14. 
here in Isaiah 14, he talks in verse 1. I'm giving a little more background here than we often give, but I think it may be helpful for you. He says, For the Lord God will have mercy on Jacob. It's been describing the terrible uh, Babylon, modern Babylon, being thrown down, the, the, the whole Roman Empire in verse 13 and earlier chapters at the end of the age. So the Lord will have mercy on our people, on Israel, when Babylon is finally crushed, this European power, and will choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. That's going to happen in a few years. Then people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. God will bring even our people here in America. There'll be so few left. He'll bring them back to Israel. And when you look at the boundaries, brethren, that God gave Israel and said it again and again back in Genesis, it extends all the way from the Euphrates River over to the Nile and all the way from northern Lebanon clear down into the Arabian Peninsula. A huge area, much, much bigger, 10 or 25 times bigger than the present nation that calls itself Israel. God gave that land to Israel and is going to give it back again, all of it. And they very seldom had all of it. And so they're going to take these people that held us in slavery and some of our own children or grandchildren may have to go into that slavery, I'm sorry to say. And they will take them captive whose captives they were. You see, our people will take them captive and yet we'll treat them right. We won't be torturing them like they did us and rule over their oppressors. So it's talking about modern Israel coming back and it shall come to pass, God will give you rest from your sorrow and you'll take up this proverb against the king of Babylon, this coming dictator, this coming beast. How the oppressor has ceased and the golden city ceased. So now they tell how God has finally brought that system down and then how God then has brought down even the ultimate ruler of that system who is Satan the devil. Because then he picks up the story after telling how this system has been brought down Verse 12, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Who is the ultimate God behind this system? Satan the devil, of course. Son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground who weakened the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Now, brethren, what you need to understand, some key things here, is one of the ways Satan deceives people is by this putting within them this very attitude. And it's just a normal attitude, we think, because every man wants to be important, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you guide that the right way. Often the little tiny guys in the world have been the Napoleons. They say you have a Napoleon complex, you're, you're small, so you try to dominate over others. And a, and, and a big tall guy can some, sometimes be more gentle because he knows he's big. He doesn't have to prove anything. Watch out for the little guy because he has to prove himself sometimes. But on the other hand, there's this attitude of wanting to be in control, wanting to be in charge, and Satan could take advantage of that. That was the first thing he describes about Satan. He says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like God. I'm just as good as you are. We're all the same. And I'm going to take over. Now that attitude is there in many men. And that is one of the attitudes Satan can use. That's his basic attitude. Kind of rebellion. I'm not going to submit to what God has done. I'm going to do my thing. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That's what Satan felt. He was created Lucifer, a great light bringer. But when he got this attitude of competition and rebellion, he became Satan, which means adversary. Yet you will be brought down to Sheol to the lowest pit, God says. So he was going to be brought down, of course, Satan the devil, and ultimately put in the bottomless pit, as it tells in the book of Revelation. Then we turn, now, brethren, to Ezekiel chapter 28. Again, most of you know this passage. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28, and beginning in verse 12. He says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And I, I started to read back, but I don't want to keep you too long. Look, just glance back over verses 1 to 11. Here you will see he's talking about the prince of Tyre, the prince of Tyre. And he says, your, your wisdom is like Daniel, and you're great, and you're powerful, and this and that. Who is this man? He was the literal ruler, human ruler over Tyre. But who was the real power behind the throne? The real king of Tyre is beginning to be described, a different personality in verse 12. Take up this lamentation for the king of Tyre, not the prince, a one over the human ruler, and say to him, Thus says the eternal God. You see, behind each pagan ruler is Satan the devil. And the Bible makes that very clear. In fact, often there will be an individual uh, demon put over the kingdoms of this world. And you find that described, as I've read you several times recently, back in Daniel 9 and 10, and the spirit wars that were described back there. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. This is not the normal prince of Tyre. This is Satan the devil. Lucifer, before he became Satan, the garden of God, every precious stone was your covering. He names them. They were prepared for you on the day you were created, a created being. You were the anointed cherub who covers one of the three great super archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. He was one of those. I established you. You were on the holy mountain, prominent in the mountain or kingdom of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. He was perfect until this attitude of competition and rebellion got in there. Till iniquity was found in you by the abundance of your trading... And frankly, you might put in there politicking. I think it involved trading and working back and forth and politicking. You became filled with violence. You sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain. The word mountain is often used as a symbol of kingdom, out of the kingdom of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. He didn't destroy them ultimately, but from being in that position... So here is the beginning of Lucifer becoming Satan the devil through that kind of vanity. He was very beautiful, even as a spirit being, very talented, wonderful music, wonderful personality, magnificent capacity. I think of one young man who had wonderful capacity, the most exciting personality that I have ever known in my life and a wonderful voice and capacity and interesting everything about him. But he turned against his leader, and it caused great disruption. That's really sad when someone has a great deal of handsomeness or, and power and a capacity. 
Satan had much, Lucifer, I should say, had much, much more than that by far. So here was the beginning of Satan the devil as he turned away from God because of his vanity. Now we go, if you would, to the New Testament and turn with me at this point, brethren, to Second uh, Corinthians, if you would, Second Corinthians chapter 4. And here we find, again, the same thing I said earlier, but I want to review this now for a moment as we go further. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes, But even if our gospel is veiled, if people don't quite get it, it's like seeing through a fog they don't understand. It is veiled to those who are perishing. The new King James is better. It doesn't say have perished, but they are perishing. You see, it's a process which the new King James points out. Whose minds the God of this age... He's not the God of all the ages, but He is the God of this 6,000 years of human experience. The God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan is called the God of this world, as it is in the King James, or technically the God of this age, as the new King James has it. And He is the God of this present society. He really is God, and we have to understand that. He's like a God, I mean, to, to this age. He's the one they worship. They don't mean to worship Him, but He is their God, and they don't understand. They're sincere, most of them. Turn now, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and beginning here in verse 1, he talks to the Ephesian Christians you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, an evil spirit, a spirit being who now works. He is busy. He never gets tired. He never quits. He works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. In other words, Satan has blinded all of us in the past. And when I was back in junior high and high school in Joplin, Missouri, I was just as wicked as most of the others. I wasn't worse, I don't think, but I wasn't any better. I was very average. I was a normal, uh, upright, red-blooded, all-American boy who cussed and drank and fought and cheated, and all that evil stuff. <laughs> and uh, so I was a normal boy. And that's what you, you do when you grow up. So we were all in that kind of stuff when we were boys, most of us at least. If any of you good guys are here, you come and tell me about it, and I'll have a counsel with you. Okay. <laughs> anyway, most of us have been in those evil things when we were young men in our teens. So God allowed that and then called us. But... He said, you walked according to the prince of this world, the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He is the invisible ruler of this world's atmosphere. And as Mr. Armstrong explains, Satan broadcasts this world's atmosphere. He's broadcasting through radio. He's broadcasting through television. He's broadcasting through the Internet. He really is. He's in charge. If he's going to really influence this world, how's the best way to do it? Well, get in some young, smart aleck, 
producers and directors out in Hollywood who are smoking weed or whatever and get them to be all smart aleck and sassy and put these rotten sex scenes in the movies and violence and perversion and lying and cheating and make it all exciting and then make sure that the fathers are put down and made fun of if they stand up for anything. Bondi and Dagwood, and Dagwood always stumbles over himself, and that's an old-fashioned one, I know, but there are other ones they do today all the time like that, the, the jackass formula. And they have the jackass formula they use on the ministers. If they introduce ministers in most of the movies you know or television shows, they use what Hollywood themselves call, themselves call the jackass formula. They're the donkey. They stumble to say something too nicey-nice and look ridiculous so the people don't want to follow a true minister of God. They make fun of the whole thing. They're very clever. They use humor as a, wean, a means of breaking down people's reserves. And they had all these other things they brought in to bring about the gay movement, as they called it. My friend Will Berg's wife is named Gay. And we used to talk about having a gay old time. They, the homosexuals, have stolen that word. It used to mean happy and joyous, and now they've stolen that word from us. People who say gay, they say, ah, that means you're a pervert. Well, that's too bad. Satan is very clever with all of that. And he gets that done through the prince of the power of the air who controls all this filth coming over our media. Then you turn to chapter 6. And by the way, Mr. Armstrong also said that Satan broadcasts directly wrong thoughts and wrong attitudes. And brethren, you have to understand that. I've told you this story, but I'll tell you again. I've heard others say they've had similar experiences. Right after I was baptized, I can't remember it was, you know, one month or three months, but in the first three or four months after I was baptized back in 1949, why... I was down by this little, uh, I used to remember the name of it, park, walking down south on Orange Grove from the college. Mr. and Mrs. Parted remember that place. And then there's a little park off to the left on, on, on uh, California Street. And I was walking in that park just during a break or something, and I had not been seeing any movies. There was no television. I wasn't reading bad things or bad books or anything. But all of a sudden I saw a person across the street, a man across the street to the north who was of average size, just a little heavier than me, but not well-built because he was older, not real old, but maybe he was looked like he was 50 or something, and I was just 19. And this thing started pounding in my head like I should go over and strangle him. And, and, and I tried to shake my head literally, I think, and just, this thought just came like that. And finally I thought, this is awful. And I've not been thinking that way. So I headed back to Orange Grove and started walking swiftly and even jogged part of the time, ran part way all the way back to Mayfair and burst in the student residence and talked to Herman Hay and Raymond Cole and Raymond Manair, some of the older students. I said, what's wrong? They said, well, that's a demon. I told them, I haven't been reading that kind of stuff or thinking that way. A demon's trying to put that in your mind. I said, what can I do? They said, the best thing is to pray and fast. So I did, and I'd already fasted a couple times. I was very newly converted, but I'd fasted on the previous day of atonement, although I wasn't baptized yet, but I fasted along with the other students and then fasted maybe once or twice since. But I fasted for two days. That was very heroic for me back there. But I fasted for two days and really beseeched God to rebuke that spirit, to take it away, and He did. He did, and nothing ever came back like that again. 
Now, there have been times when something would start to come back of an easy, of an evil uh, sex thought or violence or something would start in my mind, but I then, by being more mature, I learned to resist it and don't let it roll around in my mind. I let that other roll around in my mind for a while. I didn't realize what I was dealing with. Some thought just came right in my mind. So Satan is very real, brethren. In the summer of 1957, I was going to tell this later, but I'll tell you this story now. You need to realize demons are going to be active in the years ahead. But three of our leading men in the summer of 1957, it was a very hot summer, and may not make any difference, but the demons used to come in out of the desert. I've cast out some demons and dealt with demons, and a number they seemed to be coming out of the desert when we were there in Pasadena. They'd be out in Palm Springs or Indio or somewhere. But anyway, it was a hot summer, and three different leading men, one of my best friends and Mr. Partian's best friends too, Mr. Benjamin Ray and Mr. Bryce Clark, and, of course, it doesn't make any difference to demons because it was impressive to me. Most of you know Mario, you know, he's 6'1 and about 210 pounds or whatever, but Bryce Clark was even bigger. He was 6'2 and a half and about 225 or 30 pounds. He'd been a, a lumberjack up in, up, in, uh, up in Montana. He was one of Mr. Carl Manair's best hunting and fishing buddies later with the, the tall guy and the short guy we kidded about, but they were very good friends. But very rough and masculine, very strong. And the third one was Garner Ted Armstrong. During that summer, all three of them were similarly attacked. And they said they were lying in bed, and suddenly they felt a kind of a presence. Just they couldn't see anything, they couldn't feel, but they felt a presence come down on them. And remember, they kind of go like that. And even Bryce said, I used to lift a whole bunch of weight, whatever. And he said, no, just, it couldn't do anything, just helpless. This thing just came down on them. And then they realized it was Satan after a while, and then they began to pray. And when they began to pray and rebuke the devil, then it would lift. Now, many of you have never had that. I've never had that particular thing myself. But I'm just saying, there are demon spirits. They did not conjure up the same story. I talked to them individually and separately, and I knew all of them very well. And Dr. Ray was very converted. And uh, he, I named my son Michael Ray, my older son, after Dr. Ray. And Mr. Apartian knew him. He was a very dedicated minister and over the Spanish work for a number of years and later our, our dean of faculty at the college in Big Sandy. This happened. These things, we had quite a number of things like that happen through those years. I don't know for sure why those things have stopped happening to the same degree. One of our men had a doctorate in psychology and he mentioned to me, I've had long talks with him about this type of thing because he studied psychology and abnormal mental behavior. And he said, I think he'd had to do his classwork, his laboratory work, going to various mental hospitals. And he'd also was a minister. And he said that he felt that about one-third of the people in the mental hospitals were there because they were born some mental defect at birth. Others got into drugs or something and were damaged. But he said another third do not have any of that. And they're the ones that tend to have this split personality. You know, you've read books of psychology. It was in my freshman psychology course in, uh, back in junior college in Missouri about Helen. Helen had never studied the German language or been around Germans at all. And... Uh, 
had never studied Spanish either or been around Spanish people at all. She was a normal middle uh, mid-America American young woman. She was very close to her father. I think her mother died and then her father helped raise her. And when her father died, she got into great depression and strange moods. And all of a sudden, she'd be in these kind of strange moods and she would speak German and she'd speak Spanish and she would do Spanish dances, but she began to act weird. And they said even her face, her facial expressions changed and the voice that came out of her mouth was not Helen's voice. It was a different personality. They just think that's a human, you know, split personality. No, that's not a human split personality. That is Satan the devil. That is a demon that comes inside and takes over a human being. I know Dr. Hay used to say one time about, we were talking about this extensively, he says if it's not, people say that's not quite human, thinking it is human, really, but just not quite. If it's really not quite human, then it's probably not human, it's spirit. <laughs> you see what I mean? So you have to be alert to these things, and we're going to see a lot more of it before this age is up. Okay, turn to chapter 6 now. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Brethren, I'm going to be speaking and am speaking this afternoon about the wiles of the devil. If you want to get a title, that's it, The Wiles of the Devil. He has various strategies. He comes at us in different ways. We've already seen some of his background. You've got to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not fighting just human beings, brethren. Most of us know that once we're really converted. But against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Those rulers will actually be in charge in a few years in Europe and they will be influenced by Satan directly. Some of them may be possessed by him. This final Hitler may be possessed before it's all finished. We don't know that, but that may very well be. So we're fighting high spirit principalities and powers and high spiritual office against spiritual hosts or hosts of wicked spirits, as one translation has it, in the heavenly places. So we're fighting spiritual hosts who are battling us and trying to overthrow us. We'll try to overthrow God's church, try to pit us against one another, try to destroy God's work, destroy us individually. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand Stand therefore, don't start running and be afraid, having girded your waist with truth. You put truth around your waist. Why your waist? Well, around your waist is where your desires are for food, for liquor, for sex. So you guide those things. Having a little wine is not wrong. Loving your wife in marriage is not wrong. All this other stuff, but you've got to guide it according to what? According to God's Word, and God's Word is truth. John seventeen seventeen. So have this girded with truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, your heart. We said, you know, your attitude and heart and hopes. That's to be guided by righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 172. All thy commandments are righteousness. 
and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How are you to move? What are you to do? You're to be involved in getting out the gospel to the world. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Brethren, in dealing with Satan and the spirit world, you have to have faith. I was talking about this to one of our ministers in the field. I don't think he got and called Mr. Lyons about the topic. <laughs> Just talked to him to think of it. He said, well, one thing that might help the brethren talk about the devil is faith. He said, I've noticed a lot of brethren do not have the faith they used to have. They just don't have it. God is not as real to them, it seems, as he used to be. So many people got disillusioned, you know, during the 70s and 80s by the things that happened with Ted Armstrong and Raider and many others. They just lost faith. Well, brethren, we don't have any of those people among us today. Our leading ministers here, as far as I know, are all very clean and wholesome. We're not perfect at all, but we have a cleanness, a purity, and all this kind of thing, and we're very grateful for that. And we'll have other mistakes, of course, but I think you know that. But you've got to have faith in God. Your faith is not just in us. Your faith is in God, God Almighty. Believe God. He mentioned how so many, this field minister, he mentioned how so many people today, even in the church, the first thing when they get sick, they go to the doctor and then they may or may not ask for an anointing. Now, we don't forbid you to go to doctors. You know that. But that ought to be one of the first things you do, that is to call for an anointed cloth or to ask the minister to anoint you, pray for you, counsel him, get God involved. Asa was allowed to die prematurely because he sought to the physicians, it says, and not to God. God didn't say seeking to the physicians was wrong, although it probably was in his case because most of the physicians at that time were connected with Baal worship and they were priests of, of the devil. But the, men, the, the doctors today are not priests of the devil. Most of them just know how to cut and operate and prescribe various drugs, which may or not hurt you, of course, as I think you read my booklet on healing where this young woman who just got out of medical school said that her leading, I guess the dean of the College of, of Medicine told them in his commencement address for them, he said, uh, I, I I'm just paraphrasing it, now. I can't remember, I need to reread that, but uh, he said that about half the things that we prescribe for you will be helpful, and about half the things will be harmful, but we can't be sure which is which. <laughs> and he admitted that right at the end. So the doctors are practicing Get it? They are practicing medicine, and they're sincere, but it is sure good to get God involved. Be very careful which doctor you go to. Use your mind that God has given you. Don't let them give you something way beyond and go overboard and ask God himself to be involved. Have faith in God. Don't leave God out. Build faith in God as a way of life. Taking the shield of faith. Now, why shield? Well, because the devil's going to throw all kinds of darts, doubts, well, I'm not sure of this. And can these ministers be trusted? And we heard about this back there. And this rumor is over here. And this rumor is over there. Blah, blah, blah. That can hurt your faith. Don't let it hurt your faith. You believe in God. Believe that Jesus Christ is the living head of the church. As we saw, as we see right here in this very book, it says uh, God has put all things under, uh, Ephesians 1.22, God has put all things under Christ's feet and gave him, Christ, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Will the church ever make a mistake? Yes. Do ministers ever make a mistake? Yes. But God, as Mr. Armstrong used to have said, he said, Brethren, God has never allowed me to make a terrible mistake which would wreck the church or wreck the work. It's something we can always repair and always have. I know I had my faith severely tested many times, and frankly, one of the times when I jumped the track a little bit was back after this terrible apostasy took place, after the Tkachas came in with their wrecking crew and wrecked nearly everything Christ had built through Mr. Armstrong and many of us who had helped him build that work, for that matter, because my whole adult life was doing that. But that hurt. I thought, where, where, you know, I, I didn't give up, but I was, I was wondering for a while, and I know it says the church is the mother of us all. And Mr. Aparting and maybe Mr. Ames, some of them may remember, I was kind of little wrestling with that. How can the church be the mother of us all that's letting all these terrible things happen? And then I realized, no, I wasn't anything, and I'm very weak, and I know that, but nevertheless, after the terrible apostasy began and the God is booklet came out, and most people began to realize that in the autumn of 1992, because the booklet was given out just before the feast, and many people didn't really read it and understand how bad things were until about October, November of 1992. Within weeks, what did God do? Weeks, He raised up the global church of God. And all of you did not know about it then, but it was there. And right away, we began to get on KIEV Glendale, the radio station, and the station back in Little Rock, Mr. Crockett remember and soon after that on WHO the great big 50,000 watt clear channel station no WOAI I mean out of San Antonio that Mr. Armstrong used to be on so people began to find yes there was somewhere to go Christ did not give up he tested us for several weeks or a few months but there was a way if they'd been seeking with all their heart they would have found it sooner some were not doing that, and that's not terrible, but there was a way out. God will always give you a way out. He did not forsake His church, and God will never forsake His church. So we do want to understand that. So take the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts. You see these, these attitudes of hate and doubt and confusion thrown by the wicked one. The wicked one is Satan the devil. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet comes over your mind and God's Holy Spirit comes into your mind, so you need the helmet of salvation and the only offensive weapon you have, the sword of the Spirit, this Bible. Study it. Really learn to understand it and use it. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication, meaning continual fervent prayer. That's what that means. Fervent prayer, continuing prayer. Pray to God with all your heart being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of God. Paul wanted to preach more powerfully. He wanted to get out and do more of which I'm an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well, I'm an ambassador in chains in a certain sense. I'm in this situation with my, my stroke and I can't get out and run and go to the Y and I get tired more quickly. But frankly, brethren, about five out of six of the last years of Paul's life, he was in a similar situation. He was not, he didn't have a stroke, but he was in prison. 
he keeps mentioning my chains. Two years in Caesarea, go back and read it. About four or five months on the way to Rome in the shipwreck, remember. Then in Rome, two whole years in his own hired house where he wrote these prison epistles saying, remember my chain, then out briefly, then back the final time for several months. So he spent about five years at the end of his life in a kind of a prison, in, in a kind of chains, but in a spirit, and I'm in a different kind of situation. Why did God allow Paul to go through that? I don't know. Why is he allowing me to go through that? I don't know. He's testing me. I know that. That may be good for me. That's driving me closer to my knees. But I know he's not giving up on me as he didn't give up on the Apostle Paul. I'm not an apostle, by the way, but I'm comparing the situation. Anyway, we need to learn and try to apply these things and not give up and quit. Have faith. Have faith that God guides all these things for good because he does. Now turn back to Mark chapter 7. Turn back to Mark chapter 7, if you would, uh, brethren, and uh, try to uh, catch this here. And my own marker, my number 8 is missing, so I put number 14 there and have to remember which marker is which sometimes. But Mark chapter 7 and verse 24, talking about Christ here in the area of uh, Israel. And from there he arose and went to the region of uh, Tyre and Sidon. Mark seven twenty four, and he entered a house and wanted to know, wanted no one to know it. He wanted a little rest for a while, apparently down to the sea, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek; she was a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Her daughter had a demon spirit. Demons are fallen angels who followed Satan the, the devil, the, the chief of the demons, in rebellion against God. And there are millions of demons. Don't want to frighten you, but there are millions of demons. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw them to the little dogs. Now, if he'd been here today, boy, can you imagine the the political correctness, people coming down on him. Ooh, you cold. You see how they would say today. He didn't try to be politically correct. The Jews regarded the Gentiles as unclean and so on and so forth. And there's that certain way. And here Christ was saying that. But she was very humble. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. He recognized the deep humility that she had. So he said, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to the house, she found the demon gone and her daughter lying on the bed. Jesus cast out all fallen spirits again and again through the whole of the Bible. And brethren, demons are fallen spirits who try to influence people, hurt people, and as I say, hold them down like those demons did. Dr. Ray and Mr. Ted Armstrong and uh, Bryce Clark during that summer of 57. Uh, back during those years, we had a, a building across from the library. You older brother know it, but some of you others have seen the pictures of the Ambassador campus. And right across from the library building, uh, down the hill, a house or two, down this little hill was a place called Murphy House. It was a frame house moved in there by Hewlett C. Merritt to make money and get rumors in there. 
and so on. But we put, we bought it finally and put a bunch of the college girls in there as we outgrew Mayfair. And so it was a, a dormitory for the college girls. And we would always have a house monitor that is an older, usually junior or basically senior girl who would kind of be the help and guide the others and give them advice and try to maintain order and whatever. So we had those in each of these situations. During the summer, and I can't remember which summer it was, I better not guess, but a number of the girls, and they were not weird, they were very normal girls, and uh, Mrs. Apartian might even remember that. I'd have to ask her about that later. But at any rate, they began to experience odd things, frankly, demon things. There were drawers going back and forth. The doors in the house would sometimes open and shut, and sometimes a window would kind of go like this, and odd creaking sounds. And when they mentioned about the drawers even opening and shutting and the doors, then I realized it wasn't just some wind. It was something far beyond. It wasn't just their imagination. Mr. Armstrong was gone <clears throat> during the summer off on visiting, I think, radio stations or whatever for half the summer or whatever. And Herman Hay and I were there who had been taught very much by him and worked with him a great deal, more than the other ministers because they were all in the field and we were there with him assisting him and teaching the Bible classes. <clears throat> but we knew the example where he had gone into a house where there were demons and laid his hands on the walls and prayed for the house and the demons left. So we went over there. We were ordained. And I remember very fervently praying that God would rebuke the demons from this house. And by the way, our house, the house monitor, this older girl who was very converted, she, she saw those things too. It wasn't just one or two freshmen. They were happening. After we had prayed, no more demons. <laughs> the demons were gone. So demons do come in and they will try to distract you. They will try to confuse you. They will try to disorient you in all kinds of things. Plus, of course, put wrong attitudes of hate, rebellion, deep discouragement, all kinds of things will come into you that, that you didn't just manufacture. They just seem to come in there because of Satan the devil. Now turn back to chapter 9, if you would, of Mark. And here you find in Mark nine seventeen how Jesus was dealing with these people. And he said in verse uh, uh, 17, the man brought a... He said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit but the disciples couldn't cast him out. And Jesus answered, verse 19, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Notice Jesus' statement, O faithless generation. What would he say to our generation? Wow, I would hate to hear it. We have a lot less faith probably than they did there because God is unreal to many of you. I know that by your actions. God is unreal you sort of know God, but because you've had all this television and radio and movies and stuff, God is not as real to you as He should be. And you have to begin to really feed on this book and have God be real to you. And you then will have more faith. And you will have more of the fear of God, the awe of God, and recognize that God is in charge, that Christ is the direct leader of His church, that He's guiding, He's moving, He's guiding these world events according to His plan. Nothing can stop God. Nothing. So we need to have that kind of faith. But anyway, the disciples couldn't cast out the demons 
or the demon, and they ask him in verse 28, why could we not cast it out? And so he said in verse 29, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Get that, prayer and fasting. You've got to humble yourself and cry out to God, and then you've got to fast, do without food, and humble yourselves before God to where God becomes very real, and you realize how weak you are more when you're fasting, and then He can and will intervene more powerfully. So we want to understand. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 now, uh, brethren, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 at this point. And here Paul was talking about this man they'd had to put out for fornication in chapter 1. And he says in 2 Corinthians, did I say first? I mean 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Now whom I forgive anything, I also forgive. Or whom you forgive, I forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. In other words, before Christ and knowing God is guiding you. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We are not ignorant of Satan's devices, or we are not ignorant of Satan's wiles. Could be either one. Devices. He has various ways he tries to get at us, and I've been describing some of them. Let me mention to you now a few key things, five key things about Satan so you can understand him better. I won't give a whole sermon on each one of these, but I'll just mention them. Number one, as we've seen, Satan is the god of this world. He really is a spirit being influencing the leaders of the pagan nations and sometimes even our nations. He's influencing people in high positions in the media, in education, all through our society. That's why they come up with this awful stuff, you know, on television and the Internet and everywhere else. He is the God of this world. And you have to understand that. Number two, Satan is a deceiver, a liar, and he is a confuser. He will try to confuse people about the issues. That's one way he does deceive them. Number three, Satan is a great discourager. Sometimes before Passover or even before the feast in the fall, some of you may begin to get discouraged somehow even now. We're kind of in the summer doldrums. Well, I don't understand. Things just don't seem to be right or something. You don't know why. It's just kind of a general feeling. Satan can impart that feeling and get you so discouraged. And yet if you watch the BBC News, as my wife and I do once or twice a week at least, we used to mourn, and now we're watching other news. But at any rate, they show the horrible things happening in... Somalia and, and Nigeria and Angola and all these places where people are starving and being beaten up and tortured and everything like that, we don't even begin to commence to have the problems they have. We are so blessed in this country. We think we have problems. <laughs> Boy, we better spend a day over there somewhere. Spend a day in the slums of Calcutta sometime. I know I purposely went that and went there with John Hill. He said, why do you want to go there? I said, they've heard it called the hell hole of the world, and I want to see it. So back in 1963 on our trip around the world, we went to Calcutta for two or three days, and it was. It was awful. We saw thousands of people just coming up, and they were just gaunt and emaciated, about to die. Bakshish, bakshish, meaning present, present. 
and they were dying. And we tried to give some money one time, and then a whole bunch of them started going like this. And the, our guide said, no, no, no. And he kind of helped drive them away. He said, you better not do that again. He said, they may come. And they'll literally tear your clothes off. They'll get hysterical. And they're starving. And in the mornings, the big garbage truck would come around with the big metal tongs, like ice tongs for the ice cubes. But they weren't picking up ice. They were picking up all these human beings and throw them up on the truck and take them off and burn their bodies by the, by the river. Unnamed, unknown, poor human beings made in the image of God. The only things they had were a little knapsack on their back if they had anything at all. Millions of them were starving and starving. And it was, I came back and I wrote this article, Ten Reasons Why Christ Must Return. Get the old plain truth list and you'll find that there somewhere in late 1963 or 64. I was inspired to write that after seeing that. We must have Christ's return. We've got to. But brethren, Satan will cause you to be uh, discouraged and you don't even know why you're discouraged sometimes. And he will try to get you in a bad attitude about all kinds of things. And we need to understand it sometimes comes from Satan, the devil. He would like to get you discouraged and get you to give up and quit. Fourthly, number four, Satan will try to divide. That's one of his main tactics, divide and conquer. He came into the church back in the early days with when Mr. Armstrong was in charge and several different times. Herb Schrader and Jerry Miller and tried to get them to divide the church. And then later uh, we had these John Judy and another elder and they were trying to divide the church. And then different ones came along later. And finally we had the big rebellion in, in 1974 where one man, Ken Westby, I'll just mention his name, and about 30 ministers on the East Coast rebelled against Mr. Armstrong, tried to divide the church. And they took 3,000 brethren, 30 ministers of 3,000 brethren. And often this is a way of Satan the devil tries to get at and hurt God's plan by dividing the church. Fifthly, he causes rebellion and bitterness. Satan will cause you to want to be, you know, against God. God's not fair and he will get you in a rebellious attitude or in bitterness too, just bitterness for an almost no reason, no good reason. But Satan is often into that very, very heavily. And again, you're not being hung up by your thumbs. Someone says something to hurt you or someone fires you from your job or someone corrects you, some minister corrects you, and so you get all bitter. This happens over and over. I've seen it happen over and over and over. And God's work back in Pasadena, when I was at the college in Big Sandy. I know when I moved to Big Sandy, some of the brethren were already bitter against the ministers. They talked about the fat cats on faculty row because the ministers and the teachers, the professors, had all these houses along the lake. I didn't build those houses. I menaced it, all right? No, I had my faults, but those things were done. And the brethren, some of them just thought, well, they're being favored and that's not good. So they got in a bad attitude. They said, well, we've seen ministers come and we've seen evangelists go and so what? And so on. They had a very carnal, sassy disrespect. I think the faculty was taken too good care of there. You know, I got to experience that it was nice, but it was not perfect. But we weren't hurting anyone. I came in and there was this 4,000 square, 4,500 square foot house with a swimming pool. But my wife and I tried to have over many of the normal brethren, more than anyone else ever had in that house. And they were astonished. They said, wow, you're just having us over. We've never seen the inside of this house. And we tried to do that. And Cheryl was a wonderful host. 
hostess, <laughs> and we took brought them in and tried to reach out to the church brethren and not just the other faculty. But at any rate, there was this attitude. You're always going to find something to pick at. Some of the older brethren, I remember the old uh, Spanish-French teacher, Mr. Molly Ennessy. Mr. Pardon, I'm sure, met him, and he was kind of put Mr. Armstrong down. Mr. Party never did that, but this older, he was unconverted. But he talks about the Heavenly Father and the Son and His red chariot. Well, he meant Mr. Armstrong was the Heavenly Father, and Dick had a red Plymouth convertible. Not a Cadillac, and just a Plymouth. And Dick was working and working about 50 or 60 hours trying to get all the the uh, tapes out of the, the uh, discs they were, they had to put out, and he'd take them out in the middle of the night and work long, hard hours, so he did get his own car. But it was a little red Plymouth, so he, he was had his red chariots, and Mr. Mullins then was thinking that we were all spoiled and, and uh, making remarks against Mr. Armstrong because of those things. Others made fun later of Mr. Armstrong because of the house of God. $18 million, a lot of money. But it was a beautiful auditorium and served a good purpose. And the Mormons have those auditoriums all over the world. I understand they're very beautiful and very rich. They have dozens or maybe hundreds of them. I don't know. We had one. But Mr. Armstrong got lots of criticism. So you have to, there's always going to have an excuse to gripe about something. But remember, you've got to be sure you don't let Satan get you upset about those things. Brethren, uh, turn to now Hebrews chapter 12, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12. And here we, we find some very basic instruction. He says in verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not chasten? God rebukes and chastens me, he rebukes and chases every one of you that he loves, not because he doesn't love you, because he loves you. He wants to shake you up. He wants to get you on the ball. But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live so they indeed chasten us for a little while, but he does it for our good. And so he says down here in verse 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, and be sure, brethren, you do this, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace, you see, the graciousness, the mercy, the love of God, lest any root of bitterness. Mr. Armstrong used to say, bitterness is like a cancer. It just eats on you and eats on you until you can't think straight. He says it's like heroin. It's awfully hard to get rid of once you get a spirit of bitterness. Be careful lest you get any root of bitterness springing up and cause trouble and by this many become defiled. That spirit of bitterness can spread and spread. People get hooked on that often for no good reason. I remember a fellow named Lewis way back in the college and he came in and he had nothing virtually, very poor education. We took him in, we helped him, we gave him food and clothing in an unusual manner and he was trying to become a minister, I think, and which is, I guess, all right. But he, he, he uh, all of a sudden, Ted Armstrong and John Hill came along and they all of a sudden started to win all the, the speech trophies 
And Lewis got bitter. Well, he didn't have their background. They weren't trying to hurt him. He just got mad because they came in and they got all the honors because they were smarter. They had better voices. But he thought, why am I not getting this? And he finally got so bitter, he left and said he hated God and he was never going to serve God. And I talked to him personally. He says, I don't care. And he's the only one, the only one that Dr. Hay and I felt through all those years. And we talked to the students more than anyone, I guess, for a number of years. We felt he really had committed the unpardonable sin. But I'm not a judge. I'm not even giving you his last name. I'm just saying this, this can happen. This can happen. And I think it did happen in his case. God does talk about some people being in the lake of fire. You know, he, there is a lake of fire. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God says that very clearly. I know there's an article in the paper this morning, if you read it, it's talking about, about hell. The modern ministers are afraid to speak on hell. Well, we're not afraid to speak on it. There is a real hell, a lake of fire. And brethren, we must, not, we, we must avoid that. We must do all we can to come out of God, to over, out of the world, I mean, to overcome Satan and be in God's kingdom and avoid that. I fear that. I don't want to be there, and I don't want any of you to be there. But have the fear of God and never give in to a spirit of bitterness. And thereby many become defiled. It spreads and spreads like a cancer. So avoid that, and because Satan will try to cause that every way he can. Okay, now I want to, we're right almost to time, but I'm going to give you one or two quick scriptures here on resisting Satan and I'll just read them quickly it's basic but I'll tell you it's a very important thing you've got to understand because many don't really get this God says here in James 4 verse 4 adulterers and adulteresses do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God I think he's speaking directly and also indirectly to literal adultery but also spiritual adultery for you're a friend of the world. You're part of the world. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world, you want to be part of this world, you want their approval, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace? You see, beyond this jealousy. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Please understand that, brethren. It's not any skin off my back, but if you start exalting yourself and you begin to think how great you are and I want what I want and I'm going to get it, you're in trouble. You really are. You just cannot have that attitude. You've got to be like Jesus, not my will, but thine be done, and really mean it. Really mean it. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. You're to know he's there. Actively resist the devil and God promises he will flee from you. So you've got to do your part and then turn to, to 1 Peter now, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 5, brethren. 1 Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> and let's go to verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Younger people have a hard time with that today. They want to do their thing. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Some of us are older and need to be submissive to some of you and you're in a certain job or position or know something we don't know and so on. 
and, and uh, be clothed with humility. As we say in the vernacular, that ain't easy <laughs> to be clothed with humility. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He just does. If he senses that attitude, I've got my will, my will, my will, I'm important, I'm going to, you know, oh no. Why does God resist that? Because that is the direct spirit Lucifer had before he became Satan the devil. You've got to somehow learn there is a real God who is your Father and fear that God, not as a monster, but have all of that great, wonderful, powerful spirit being. And you're made in His image. He wants you in His family. He loves you. But try to submit to God with all your heart. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. He loves you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, he's alive, he's active, he never gets tired, he never quits. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. They're out there. He overcomes the people in the world. They don't know God. But may the God of all peace who called us into, as it should be, and not just to look at it, but to experience it, into His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while. Are you going to have to go through some trials? Yes. Will it be easy? No. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So cry out to God, brethren. Cry out fervently with strong crying and tears, which you read Jesus did there in Hebrews 5, and ask God for help and resist the devil and have faith that God will rebuke Satan. He will always deliver you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So let's know he's real. Know your enemy. Resist him. And God will give you all the extra help you need.